is in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, if you will turn with me in God's holy word to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll read our text, verse 27. Hear now God's very word. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. That's God's very word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Holy Scripture. How we thank you that you not only gave your word through the men of old, it is not their word, uh, but you, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, carried these men along as we read uh, in the book of Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, they didn't follow their own thinking. They didn't fo follow the myths of men. But you, O oh God, spoke your word uh, through them and their pens. And Lord, we thank you that you have preserved and kept your word down through the ages. And now, Lord, we turn to you and acknowledge our utter dependence on you, O God, the Holy Spirit, to be our teacher. Lord Jesus, you are the only one who can explain your word rightly. And we beg that you would come by your spirit and open our minds and our eyes to uh, understand your word rightly as you uh, intended it to be understood. And that then, Lord, you would write that word upon our hearts and you would stir us to action to follow you, Lord Jesus, uh, with faithfulness, with commitment, with energy, uh, Lord, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor uh, as uh, we would uh, naturally want to love ourselves. Lord God, please come and bless us now. Uh, Lord, we're dependent on you, and we're excited as your little children, uh, to sit at your feet, O oh Lord Jesus. So you come and speak your word to my heart and the hearts of your lambs here this day. In Jesus we pray, amen. You might think uh, it odd uh, to just look at this one verse. Hopefully, when we finish today, you'll say, hmm, that's a pretty amazing little verse. I cannot tell you the number of times that I've read through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And isn't it fascinating that every time we open God's Word, we're not only reminded of precious truths that we've seen before, but God shows us new things that were there all along, but I, I was just too uh, dull uh, to really see it. I, I mean, I read it, uh, but what difference did it really make? 
Well, this text before us today, I confess, I had never really thought about why it is so important and why it is so thrilling and exciting. But this verse that we are looking at this morning is all of those things. It is vitally important. It is crucial. And it is exciting. Well, let's look at it together. Verse 27. At the very end of this letter, the next to the last verse, the Apostle Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Why an oath? Well, before we can answer that question, we have to really stop and think about what is the significance of putting someone under an oath? Now, on first glance, there are people who look at various passages of Scripture and they take those verses out of context from their immediate context and the rest of Scripture and have said, in light of these passages we're going to look at, that it's wrong for God's people to ever take an oath or make a vow. An oath is when we call God to witness that what we're saying is the truth. And when we make a vow, a promise, we're calling God to witness that we're going to keep that promise. Those are the most solemn of statements that we can make, uh, calling God to judge us if what we are not saying is the truth. And when we uh, uh, call God to witness in making a promise, uh, it is the most binding of all commitments uh, that we can ever make. When we take our stand with God's people, as we saw uh, with King Josiah, uh, he entered into covenant. It involves the oath. It involves the vow of calling God to witness. I am promising to follow the Christ. When we get married, we are entering into a marriage covenant. And we saw that uh, last uh, uh, Lord's Day, the covenant, the commitment. Uh, when parents uh, apply the sign of the covenant, they make vows and promises, calling God to witness that I view this child as yours and I will raise this child in your way. And so the oath, uh, indeed, it is a solemn thing. Well, why do some people say that Christians shouldn't enter into an oath or make a vow? Well, over in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Uh, that are taken out of context. Uh, the backdrop is the Pharisees had followed the tradition of the rabbis that you could make exceptions 
to vows that you make. And in that backdrop, the Lord Jesus says this in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Is Jesus forbidding in any and every circumstance taking oaths and making vows? Well, let's go over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and here we see a little bit more information about what was going on with the religious leaders of the day and what Jesus is addressing that was so grievous. Look at verse 16. In the context of Jesus rebuking of the hypocrisy of, of the Pharisees, following the tradition of the rabbis. In verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Now, I think I shared with you some time ago when I was growing up, we had a new family that moved into the neighborhood. And one of the people in that family was a young boy about my age. And my dad had given me, uh, as a Christmas present, a pocket knife, a case pocket knife. And it was one of my prized possessions. And so when this new kid showed up, they unloaded the moving van, and later that afternoon, I introduced myself to him. We were standing out in a little field, a pasture, uh, between these houses, and uh, I told him my name, and we introduced each other, and I decided that I would extend a, a expression of great, uh, friendship that I would show him my most prized possession of this pocket knife. And I held it out and I said, do you see what I have? And he, he looked at it and he said, can I, can I hold it? Well, it was just the way he said, can I hold it? I was a little uncomfortable. I didn't know this kid. And, and I said, well, yeah, you can hold it, but you can't have it. I said, you know, do you agree? He said, oh, yeah. And he grabbed it out of my hand, and before I could even say anything, he started running away with my pocket knife. And then over his shoulder, he turned and he said, had my fingers crossed. And I thought, who is this kid? We're not going to get along well. 
This is not good. Um, I'll tell you the rest of the story some other time. I did eventually get my pocket knife back, but it was not without some distress. That's what the rabbis had taught people they could do. That they could swear by the temple and it was like having your fingers crossed. You didn't have to keep your word if you swore by the temple. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, then you were bound by your oath. Verse 17, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so here we have the Lord Jesus giving us, pulling the curtain back a little bit more about what was going on. And so in Matthew chapter 5, when he says that your yes ought to be yes and your no, no, he's talking about in everyday life that it was a wicked thing. It was a breaking of the third commandment to be using the name of God as just a frivolous byword. And you hear people do that in our day and time. You hear people say, I swear that is the best pie I think I've eaten in two months. Uh, that is taking God's name in vain. To swear is calling God Almighty. And Jesus says in our everyday lives, in just uh, the common course of existence, our yes ought to be yes and our no ought to be no. We ought to be men and women, boys and girls, who tell the truth because God is the God of truth. And the eighth commandment says, thou shalt, uh, I mean the ninth commandment, the Eighth Commandment says not to steal. That's what my buddy did. He stole. But he also broke the Ninth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. The Lord says that we ought not take this matter of oaths or vows as just a frivolous thing. We see two passages of Scripture that show us that those who would appeal to Matthew 5 and the book of James says something very similar, let your yes be yes and your no, no, that that's referring to the common course of life, but that there are occasions where something is so vital, so important that an oath is needed. There are certain commitments that a vow is needed. And we have God himself taking an oath. And we looked at that 
in connection with looking at the covenant that King Josiah made and renewed with all of the people. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And here we see a passage where God himself takes an oath. And so we know that it cannot always be wrong to take an oath, to make a vow, because God himself, who never sins, does so in this passage. Look at Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, you remember in Genesis 15, God had made a promise. Abraham said, Lord, I believe you, but can you help me? How can I know for sure that you are going to do these things? Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so uh, why do we still in this a day of unbelief, we still have people taking oaths. Well, it's because of the Christian heritage of our country that when people assume an office, it is a solemn thing. They're making a commitment, and they would raise their hand and place their hand on the Bible and take an oath calling God to be witness that what they were promising to do and be, they would fulfill asking God to judge them if they break their commitment. Um, the testimony in a courtroom, what I'm about to say, I'm calling God to witness that what I'm telling is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And so here we see God himself taking an oath he takes an oath upon himself. He was the one who passed between those parts, declaring to Abraham, So be it done to me, as has been done to these animals, if I break any of my promises to you. An oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it, uh, the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. God gave two confirmations. The first unchangeable thing was God's Word. God's Word is sufficient. But God came to Abraham, and He comes to us as Abraham's children, as we read in Galatians chapter 3. Whoever belongs to Jesus, we are in Jesus, Abraham's children, heirs according to promise. <coughs> and so this confirmation that God gave to Abraham, not only the promise of God, but then the oath. God has taken the oath upon himself saying, 
You can bank your very life upon the truth of the gospel, upon the promises of God that are ours. We who have fled for refuge through these two things might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And what is the hope set before us? It is Jesus Christ. It is the Lamb of God who gave himself, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died upon the cross. One more passage that I think would be very helpful is over in Matthew chapter 26. And here we have the example of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, the Lord Jesus had spoken not a word in all of the false accusations of the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees that had gathered in Caiaphas' courtyard. Uh, they had hurled accusation after accusation, and the Lord Jesus opened not his mouth. He is before Pilate, and the same thing is happening. And we read in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at the distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what does it mean to adjure somebody? It is to place them under oath. I am placing you under oath. I am ordering you to answer, calling God to be your witness that what you are being asked, is it true? What is your answer? And notice what the Lord Jesus does. He doesn't say nothing. He doesn't say no. It would be sinful for me to answer under oath. He answers. This is when he opened his mouth. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God, and Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Lord Jesus, his favorite self-title, self-name that he called himself, and you can read this in the Gospels, is this term, the Son of Man. And it's taken from a passage in Daniel chapter 7 uh, where we have the Son of Man and He is the one who comes on the clouds. It is Messiah. It is the Son of God come in the flesh. 
And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Well, here we have uh, information about this thing of the oath. It is fascinating that on several occasions throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, when there was a particular point that needed to be made, um, he would call God to witness. Um, we won't look at all of these, uh, but this text that we have before us, uh, he would say, I am not lying as God is my witness. Uh, whenever there was some truth that was so uh, important and it may be questioned, uh, there was the need for uh, uh, the oath. Um, as we mentioned previously, uh, commitments that we have made. King Josiah, he enters into covenant. That involves taking a vow committing, calling God to witness, I will follow the Lamb. That's what a Christian is. We publicly confess our commitment to follow Christ. When people get married, they are covenanting together, calling God witness. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses to join this man and this woman in the state of holy marriage. Uh, and so back to our text now. Why does the Apostle Paul use the oath in this request? That's the question. Uh, I hope you understand oaths are not to be made unless they are necessary for some crucial issue uh, to be either verified or a commitment made. Uh, it, it's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be made as just a casual uh, a matter of everyday life. But the oath, the vow, is to only be taken when there is something that is of the utmost importance that needs to be verified, that needs to be set in concrete, if you will. Why this? Well, let's look at the text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, who's the you? Well, in the Greek, it is a plural pronoun. It's not just singular, but it's you. And this letter was to the church of the Thessalonians. You can turn back to chapter 1. That's who this letter is to. And the you is to the whole of the people of God. Every single Christian was being placed under oath 
with the obligation to make sure that they and everybody else read God's Word in this particular epistle. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I put you under oath. Now, it also is true that the under-shepherds, the elders of that congregation, had an even greater responsibility to make sure that all of the rest of the congregation did what God placed them under obligation to do. That is true. But don't think that this lets anybody off the hook. It was the duty of every person in that congregation, and it was the responsibility of the under-shepherds to remind the sheep and lead the sheep and help the sheep remember this is what God is obligating all of you to do. I put you under oath before the Lord. This is a solemn thing that God Almighty is placing you under oath. He is reminding you of something that is so important. It's on a level of saying your I do's to Jesus. It's on the level of making a marriage commitment. That's how weighty this thing is. It's on the level of giving testimony in a court of law, calling God to witness. This is that important. And what is it that he is saying rises to such a level of solemnity and importance and weight to have this letter read to all the brothers. Isn't that astounding? God says it is so important for us as individuals, as families, as a congregation, for our whole community to be hearing, to be reading, to be speaking, to be acquainted with the Word of God. Why is that the case? Why is the Word of God, the Bible, so important? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's go over, first of all, to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans, chapter 10. And we're just going to jump down and look at one verse, but the context is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he asks a question in verse 14. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, 
and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of God. Where, where does faith come from? God the Holy Spirit comes and takes his word, the Bible, and through the tool of his word, God gives us faith. How important is the word of God? It's the chief tool by which God saves his people. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, look, this is so important. I'm putting you under oath before the Lord to make sure you, child of God, read and make sure everybody else around you reads the Word of God, this book. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writing to his young son in the faith, an apprentice pastor, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, here's some of the bad actors you're going to face, but you remember my testimony and you follow in my footsteps as I have shown you the Lord Jesus. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so why is the word of God so crucial and important for us to read as individuals, as families, as a church congregation? Why is the word of God so important in this community? Why is the word of God so important in this country? It is because it is the tool that God Almighty uses to give people faith in Jesus Christ. It's the tool, it's the weapon that God the Holy Spirit wields to deliver people from bondage in sin, from paganism, from darkness. You want to see this culture changed? Turn the Word of God loose. You want to see this country spared from continuing to go down into the sewer of human experience. We desperately need God the Holy Spirit to come wielding His mighty sword of life. Because only the gospel according to Holy Scripture can save individuals and families and a nation in the state that we but praise God, this is the tool God uses. This is what happened in Thessalonica. These were people who were worshiping idols. But Jesus came to town. And he broke through those strongholds and barriers of darkness and began to pluck people from the net of sin and destruction and death and hell and 
forgave and made them alive and made them a new creation in Christ. Not only is it the tool God uses to get us saved, but it's the tool he uses to keep us. Look at the next verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They're not only able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, but in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is the, the path for life. Not only to get us saved, but to grow up in Jesus. Two more passages. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus is praying for his people. He's praying not that we would be taken out of this world, but that as we live in this fallen world, that we would be kept from the evil one. And in verse 17, look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. From the evil one, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. And so not only is the word of God the tool, the chief tool that God uses to get us saved, it is the chief tool by which we live so that we know how to please God in every facet of our existence. Look at John chapter 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I'm the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It is for his word to abide in us. And so those are the two big reasons why we need to be immersing ourselves in the word of God. And we ought to understand how crucial it is that we do so on a daily basis basis. Turn with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 8. This is true for individuals. God says you as an individual 
and it's always an exciting thing. It was when my children were growing up when they could read for themselves. Why was that such a big, big, exciting thing? Well, the chief of all the things that is so crucial for a child to be able to do is read for themselves the Word of God. Our forefathers understood this. The very first legislative act that was passed by the legislature in the Massachusetts colony was the old deluder Satan Act. <laughs> what a name for a legislative bill. The old deluder Satan Act. Why'd they call it that? Well, they said, we want all of our young people and children to be able to read. And so we're going to establish that if a village gets 80 families or more, they by law are required to establish a common school and help fund a common school so that we make sure everybody can read. Because if you can't read the Bible for yourself, Satan, who is a liar, a deluder, is going to have a heyday. And we want to make sure everybody can read. There's all kinds of fun stuff you can read. That's good. But the reason why you have to be able to read, you need to be able to read, if at all possible, is you need to be able to read the Bible. And that's, that's our history. A lot of people don't like that in this day and time. But that's the first legislative act that was passed. Look in Proverbs chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 32. Here is God's wisdom personified speaking. God's wisdom steps forward and said, Now all y'all need to listen to me and follow me. There are two women that step forward in the book of Proverbs. One is God's wisdom, and that's the woman you want to listen to. That's the woman you want to find and spend time with. But there's another woman that steps forward in the book of Proverbs, and that's the woman folly, the woman folly. And she's dressed up like the world, and she entices people to come and follow her. You don't want to follow her. You want to follow God's wisdom. You want to listen and follow and run after Jesus. Look at verse 32. This is God's wisdom speaking now. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. We've got a culture in love with death. We're committing national suicide. We're committing death emotionally and societally in this country 
on a, a scale that is staggering. And the root of it all is we've turned our back on Jesus. We've turned our back on God's wisdom. And God says we need to be listening to God's wisdom. We need to be seeking after Jesus when? One day a week. Nope. Look at verse 34. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates. Every day. If, if, if we're not reading the word of God every day, we're setting ourselves up for being easy pickings for the evil one. Same thing with families. You know, we're familiar with Joshua 24, verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And when is this instruction supposed to be happening? Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul <coughs> and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, the Bible, shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. When you get up in the morning, you're talking about Jesus and His Word. You're talking to your children and your grandchildren about the Bible, about how to think biblically about how to analyze what's going on around you from God's perspective, plugging the Bible into every situation of life. When you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, morning, noon, and night, the Word of God is to be referred to, applied every day. What about the church? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And here we have the testimony of the experience when the Lord came down with such great power and all those people were converted. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And look, when were they doing it? Verse 46, day by day. They were doing this daily. They were feeding on the Word of God. They were listening to God's Word. When do our officials need to be thinking the Word of God? It's not just one time a year when we have a Thanksgiving proclamation, although I am very thankful for Thanksgiving proclamations that do make reference to Almighty God, unlike this past Thanksgiving that had no reference to God. But it needs to be daily 
that the Word of God is opened and referenced and decisions made in the legislative branch, in the executive branch, and the judicial branches of civil government. Because apart from the rule of King Jesus, we don't even know what right and wrong is. And we are now far down the road of showing we don't know what right and wrong is anymore in this country. We are so lost. We need a Savior. Romans 13 says that the civil government ought to view itself as God's servant to protect what God says is good and punish what God says is evil. Oh, how we need the Word of God. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of this little book, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Well, one of the exciting things that the Trinity Session wants to announce is that beginning January the 1st, we are inviting you, we're not requiring this, but we're inviting you and urging you to participate as individuals and families and us as a congregation of God's people for all who would desire to join together. We're going to read through the Bible in two years. And I'm excited about this. Just think about it. Uh, we, we will be handing out uh, of a, a schedule of where to read. And if we're reading the same passage of Scripture, it, it will make it easier for us to be talking uh, to each other about the exciting things we're, we're learning together. We'll be able to ask each other questions. What do you think this passage means? You can ask the elders when you read through a passage. Everybody's reading the same passage. We'll make reference to it in the Sunday morning, in the Sunday evening, sermons from time to time. Uh, we'll talk about it at prayer meeting. Oh, I think this is going to be a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And you can download an app to your phone. Anybody have a phone? And you can download this app and you can keep track. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be checking on you. You know, I'm not going to be going in to your phone and looking. How you doing, Henry, with reading? I mean, that probably would be a good thing for us to be asking each other. Henry, how you doing with your reading? Are you... Keeping up with your reading, or if you've fallen way behind? Oh, dear. But what a joy it will be for us. One of the things that we could do in light of the importance of the Word of God is as individuals and families and a church family be reading through the Scriptures together. Um, God's Word is important. It's our life. 
for our souls and minds to be bathed with the Word of God day in and day out. Looking to Jesus, feeding upon Him, growing up in Him. Praise God. We also have a book that has... Uh, we're going to make available to every household that wants one. And again, you don't have to. But it's a book that summarizes what this particular book that we're reading in the Bible is all about. And I think it'll be really a, a, just a helpful tool. Um, it's excellent. It's got some good stuff in it. But if you would like one of those books, uh, just see me. And we'll order it for you. It's also available that you can download it to your phone or your computer if you'd rather have it that way. See, we're high tech. All right. Praise God for his word. Oh, God's word is sweet. It's good. It is so precious. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for these precious lambs that you bled and died for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you love us and you've not left us as little orphans groping about in, in darkness, wondering who you are and who we are and what's right and what's wrong and, and how we can put things right. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Thank you that you have given your Son, the Lord Jesus, to be our Savior as our wondrous prophet and priest and king. Thank you, O oh Lord, that as individuals and families and a congregation and this whole nation, that, Lord, we need your word and we gladly confess that to you. And we give ourselves anew to you, Lord, uh, to be willing to, to read your word. And Lord, those that are, are so inclined, we pray that you would bless as we uh, read your word together. Uh, Lord, that you would use it to be a great encouragement, uh, a, a mighty tool uh, to grow us to love you and to love one another more and more. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, O Lord, for this verse. Indeed, it is so profound, and it is exciting. Lord, you are good, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.